0: practice um, that that will speak to the stuff we're talking about so we'll get started with uh, Leslie's survey which was asking should history museums collect contemporary objects and she conducted this survey last year with a group of about 250 responses from both museum professionals and the visiting public and basically asking um, one of the main questions if you were to acquire one item and its related story To reflect our present history, what would you collect and why? And this is sort of the breakdown of the most popular respondents from the survey. Um, You can see that some of the biggest categories involve new technology and the way that technology has impacted our lives. Um, And Leslie brings out that there were... About a third of the people who responded simply said technology of its many forms, but almost 15% specifically said Apple products. And so not just naming a type of technology, but a brand. So that really speaks to the the influence that that particular company even has in our contemporary society.
1: Or the sense that people have of what's going to be important, um, which which is kind of an interesting thing to parse out.
0: Some of the top reasons that she found that um, respondents gave for reasons to collect or not to collect, Um, some of the biggest reasons to collect that people responded with were that every object represents some portion of our history Um, and that we should be collecting these things now while they're readily available. Um, So the reasons to collect were a little bit more um, ideological and content-based. But we noticed that the reasons that people gave why they would not collect were a little bit more practical um, in terms of feeling that they wouldn't have the storage space to be collecting things that are going on today or that they didn't have the budget to be collecting things um, so actively in contemporary history. Um, And the the response that I found interesting was so small um, was the we're not qualified to say
1: what should be collected uh, because we don't have proper distance. That's the major uh, the major thing I hear against collecting contemporary objects uh, in general. Um, but uh, in this survey, Leslie found that, that that was not one of the major reasons.
0: And so, wait, <laughs> I can bestow my own notes. So. Um,
1: so anyway, just talking about some of the uh, examples of kinds of things that, that people in this survey discussed as uh, important uh, to collect uh, right now was this really overwhelming sense that um, that com- that computing technology has really changed the way that people live their everyday lives and that that should be uh, that should
0: be represented in our collections and some people on her survey responded simply we should be collecting social media devices it, that's a very broad way of saying anything that records your Facebook page your Twitter account your whatever kind of uh, social media feed you have out there. So as an example, she used a tablet, but really the, the actual content we would also be thinking about preserving would be that digital footprint. Um, so that's kind of – I don't really know how we would do that, honestly.
1: Well, there, there are people that are, that are collecting software, and yeah. we, are, um, we are not going to focus on that right
0: now. Another major category for respondents was that we should be collecting objects of everyday life. This is an example that Leslie found from the uh, na- Amer- the Natural American Museum of History. And um, one of the things that she found was that people on some surveys said, we should not be collecting these things that we're still using because we're still using them today sort of giving the idea that, well, if it's still in use, it's not yet important enough, or again, that idea that there's not as much distance in order for us to really understand why it's important to us. Um, but we're really arguing the case that because we use it every day, because it's such a big part of our lives, it's exactly why we should be collecting it.
1: And that gets to the question in the title of this of this presentation. Um, how do we tell? how What makes something an artifact and not... Uh, not some, and not just a thing at a thrift store. And we find that the stories that are connected with those things um, and their resonance for visitors and just the fact that we
0: have collected it really changes an object. So, so for more information on Leslie's thesis, you can find her contact information here um, and her more extensive survey results as well. I'm going to give a few examples from my historical park, um, Rosie the Riveter. I'm going to shorten the title to just calling it Rosie for now. Um, We collect from 1939 to 1951 is our scope of collection period. This basically is to encompass sort of the buildup and the demobilization period of the war. Um, We collect uniquely World War II era items such as rationing books or V-mail letters, but also more... Less, also less, telling items that might be like dinnerware or handheld tools, things that you would not automatically identify as being from the war years. Um, initially, the collection grew out of a grant from the Ford Mo- Motor Company, in which we were able to have a very wide campaign saying basically, if you have a homefront story, we would like to know about it. Not knowing what the response would be, and about 10,000 people responded. And started sending in letters, emails, phone calls, telling their experiences, but also sending in their stuff. And so the collection just sort of boomed that way. Um, Today it's much slower, thankfully. Um, We still get about maybe 10 donations every month, but for the most part, it's now down to word of mouth for collecting. Sort of going back to the wider idea of why do we collect these things, um, for our park, we feel that this is a tangible evidence of the everyday life that people were experiencing during the war years. And sort of to put it another way, what would we really be saying if we did not collect these items? In a way, we would be saying that the everyday experiences don't matter as much as the experiences of politicians or generals. And the more obviously, leading figures of history. Um, So we try to collect things that sort of honor and remember the experiences of the individual who actually donated it, but also the more just representative experiences of what everyday life was like during this time period. And another reason that we feel it's essential to be collecting these objects is that these sort of more mass-produced, commonplace items have the ability to engage visitors in a way that something that is much more rare or only valued for its aesthetic value doesn't really have the ability to. This is something that people can make a much more personal uh, connection to, something that evokes memory, not just something that they saw on TV or learned in a history book, but something that they experienced in their own lives as well. And so the information that we collect is really just as important as the object itself. We take down the basic information, of course, the provenance, if we're able to find out um, the manufacturer or the date that it was produced, um, the materials that it was made of, of course, but we also try to document as much as possible about the history or the biography of the object. Um, Who owned it? What happened to it after the person purchased it, used it? Did they make any modifications to it? and what memories do they associate and tie to the object that they're donating to the collection. So the value that we place on the objects in our collection is really more so in the information and in the memory behind it, as much as in the memory of that person who donated it, as in the object itself. And, again, also the memory not just of the person who donated it, but the memories that it is able to evoke for our visitors which we're going to discuss in just a second. So um, the first example I wanted to share is an object from our collection that we tried to exhibit quite a bit. This is the 1945 edition of Better Homes and Garden Cookbook. And the image you see is the first page of the book. It's your 1945 key to today's cooking. In a more general sense, we feel like this was an important object to collect because it gives a lot of vital information about how people were coping with wartime rationing How did it modify the way that they were cooking, the types of foods that they were using, what was available to them at the time? But also, um, we have the story behind the woman who owns this book. Um, Elizabeth Helper was a chemistry high school teacher during the war years in the San Francisco Bay Area, but she had always dreamed of being a scientist. As a woman, she felt that her best option was to go into teaching. But during the war, she had the opportunity to get involved in chemical testing with standard oil, which we, of course, we now know as Chevron. And so in a way, this sort of fulfilled her dream to step above the role that she thought she would be limited to and become the scientist she'd always dreamed of. Um, But one thing that I always found really interesting is that the object she chose to donate was not something related to her work experience, but it was a cookbook that aided her in feeding her family. And so that sort of adds a much richer layer to the story we can tell with just a cookbook. Um, And we've also learned that almost anything related to food evokes very strong memories from our visitors. There's such a strong culture, no matter what your background is, of sharing recipes, family time around the dinner table. And so anytime this object is on display, there's a lot of spontaneous memory sharing among our visitors and with our staff. And that really speaks to the strength of this collection in being able to draw that out from visitors and make that personal collection. This is an example of um, something that we probably are spending more money on cleaning than what it is actually worth in a monetary sense. Um, It's an aluminum hair clip, a plastic comb, and some hair cutting scissors. Very basic, standard. We don't even have the information for what company may have made these things, um, except for the scissors. Um, But these were were owned by a woman who owned a beauty salon that she ran out of her living room during the war years. And she stayed open until 1 a.m. because there was a local defense factory that, you know, there were women who were getting off of work around 11 p.m. They would come over, get cleaned up at her house, and then she would do their hair so they could go dancing to the (laughs) 24-hour dance halls and theaters. So that tells a very interesting story, not just about her personal experiences, but it speaks to the enormous defense industry that sprang up during the war years, Um, the 24-hour, around-the-clock, not just factories, but, um, you know, the dance halls, the theaters. And there's also a very personal story in that when her daughter donated these materials, she says one of her fondest memories as a child was sneaking out of bed and creeping into the living room and watching her mother um, transform these women from these factory workers into uh, these dolled-up, ready-to-go-dancing ladies. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And so my last example is of this welding mask that was owned by a man named Tom Oishi. He was a second-generation American. His father was an immigrant from Japan, and his family owned a cut flower nursery business in Richmond. And... um, this is his welding mask. He was a shipyard worker in the Kaiser shipyards, were so about 90,000 employees at its height. Most of them were welders, so definitely a very commonplace item, something that we have in our collection multiple times over. Um, it's rusting. The leather is deteriorating around the neck guard. But this is one of our most valuable pieces, in my opinion, because this is a story of a man who was let go from his job because he was of Japanese descent, and his family was sent to an internment camp. And and yet, one of his most enduring sentiments from the war years was a quote that he he gave during an oral history interview. And he said, um, speaking of his father's opinions and his own, he said, my father thought this was the best place in the world to live. And it is. And he was speaking about his hometown and about the United States in general. Um, So that was his enduring sentiment. And that's the story that we're able to tell of that incredible injustice and yet that deep patriotism that he felt through this mask. Of course, that takes a lot more time to be able to document and record these memories um, behind these objects. And so when we're talking about sort of capturing the biography of an object, um, we sort of have to go at this in multiple ways. One of the things that we've been able to do is partner with the Regional Oral History Office at UC Berkeley And they are able to provide extensive oral history interviews that are video recorded, several hours long, fully transcribed, and online. But, of course, that is an endeavor that is capturing a fraction of the stories that we're able to collect. So we have a much more informal process where we encourage people to write down their own stories as much as possible, sit down with a family member. We give them a very quick worksheet um, to say, you know, Here are some great topics we would like to hear from you, but whatever you'd like to share with us, we are more than willing to um, record and document our collection. And so in that way, we're trying to um, capture as much as we can before this generation passes. And of course, by placing so much emphasis on the memory that these people are sharing in terms of the value of the object... We do have to be careful about the fact that these are memories that are 60, 70 years down the line. So they may not be as factually accurate. There's certainly going to be bias. I mean, it's the person's own story they're trying to tell. Um, But we try to remember that the emphasis is on that this is what they chose to remember. This is how they impacted their life because this is how they viewed it this many years down the line. Um, And so because this is is such a personal collection. Um, We also try to um, let people know as much as possible what's happening to their stuff after it comes into our hands. We let our our donors know anytime something is on display, we send a letter to the family. Um, As much as possible, we try to um, make copies for people who say donate photographs but still want to keep something in the family. This is definitely a stretch on limited resources, but because this is something that is so... um, deeply personal and touching to so many individuals and their family members, at this point we still feel like it's d- certainly worth the effort um, as long as we're able to while this generation is still with us. And of course we feel like it adds a much richer layer of history to the objects that we're able to exhibit, and we're trying to capture that as much as possible while we can. So I'm going to turn it over to Suzanne. Uh, shall
1: we switch Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I am going to talk about the 21st century. Um, So my title, as you see, I'm the uh, uh, contemporary history curator, and um, I am in charge of, among other things, uh, this section that you see um, in our history gallery uh, called California to be Continued, which goes from 1975 to right now. Um, So When I say I'm a contemporary history curator, people ask me, well, how contemporary is contemporary? Um, And I always say that it ends yesterday. Um, So we are trying to collect up to the present. Um, So I am going to talk about uh, why and how we should collect and exhibit the very recent past. Um, So I'm going to mostly talk about a collaborative project that we do about collecting and exhibiting the recent past, um, and a little bit about field collecting of contemporary objects, and then end with some general guidelines. Um, So... uh, Just to start off with, the Oakland Museum of California is a museum of California's art, history, and natural science. So we're a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary uh, institution focused on California um, that was formed um, in the late 60s as a merger of three municipal museums. And when it was formed in 1969, there was a real emphasis on being the People's Museum um, and really reflecting the... Um, the community um, of Oakland um, and of the entire state of California. Um, so really being a place that, um, that's a community space and that in our collecting and exhibiting practice uh, includes the community. Um, So I feel like our contemporary collecting practices are really an extension of being the people's museum. Um, One of our major interests is to, um, is that visitors will see themselves represented in the museum um, and visitors will feel like it's their place. Um, So that's that's one of the reasons we do this. Um, We also want to collect artifacts that have emotional resonance for contemporary visitors that, that are part of their own lived experience. Um, that they recognize, that um, that can help draw them further into some of those stories we have to tell. Um, we also want to communicate to visitors that their personal stories are an important part of history um, and that um, what they're doing right now is history um, and is worthy it, of being in a museum, is valuable uh, enough to be in a museum. Um, a couple more prosaic uh, reasons that we collect the history of right now is to capture the rich documentation you can acquire for contemporary artifacts Um, that you can, um, that if you're getting something that was, that was uh, acquired by the donor just, just a few months ago or just a few years ago, often you will have a lot of supporting material in terms of receipts, in terms of boxes, in terms of, Um, sort of auxiliary material, and in terms of stories. Um, Like Veronica, we're really interested in in getting visitor stories, donor stories, about how they used these artifacts and what they meant to them. Um, And there's a couple pitfalls I uh, just want to go over before uh, I get into talking about this project. Um, And... Um, they are, you know, the difficulty of predicting the future. That's when, when, you, when you collect something that was produced in the last 10 years, you are, you are making a bet that it's going to be important in the future. And our collections, everybody's museum collections, are full of stuff that uh, our predecessors thought would be useful for the future. And sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. So that's, that's part of the, the risks. Of, of being in this business because um, when you when you collect something you're making a real commitment to um, to stewarding it for the for the public. Um, so so we try to make the best the best decisions we can guided by uh, our visitors and our collecting plans. Um, Another pitfall is uh, is the fact that if artifacts were used in visitors' lived experience, if you're telling stories of stuff people remember very very well, there's uh, there's a lot of differences of opinion that come up. So um, so part of part of your exhibit practice for contemporary artifacts is to leave some room for multivocality and to to leave some space for uh, for different interpretations of some of these stories. Uh, and the last one is. Uh, uh, is people's own internalized ageism. Um, it's very interesting you, when you exhibit something that was used by someone in their childhood, often you get a response from visitors, I'm, I must be so old. <laughs> How are my toys at the museum? So, so, um, so that, that's really, that really needs to be countered by, um, by showing visitors that their stories are important and that... Uh, it's not because they're old that their stuff is in a museum. It's because they're important. Uh, so, with uh, with all of those uh, all those preliminary discussions, I want to talk about uh, this California to be continued section, and specifically about a project that we do called uh, What's Happening California. So, um, this this is a section of the. Uh, the exhibit uh, that you saw there, and so there's this plywood wall and a big sign that says history always under construction. We're trying to make the point that um, that this is a living process and that uh, history is something that is not just in a textbook. Um, so this, this kind of plywood wall always, always stays up there. Um, we, um, so we were lucky enough to get a grant from the IMLS to uh, do a project called What's Happening in California. And it is a uh, collaborative project with California State University Schools, um, where we work with a class of students to uh, talk about, uh, to do an exhibit with them about contemporary issues in their community. Um, And we have done three right now, and I'm working on the fourth. Um, And these have been a really great way to uh, both collect and exhibit contemporary artifacts. And since this is a collaborative process, the students are the ones who choose what the show is about and who really help identify artifacts uh, for us for us to collect around it. Um, the, uh, the first show we did was with uh, CSU East Bay in Hayward, um, and it was a panel show about... Uh, cultures, uh, uh, kind of uh, cultures connecting in Hayward. Um, And then we got this grant and we're able to do kind of larger exhibits. So this first exhibit I'm gonna show you, uh, we did with Sacramento State. It's called What's Happening Sacramento? Um, And the students um, in uh, Lee Simpson's class at Sacramento State, a public history class, um, focused on water issues. Um, in Sacramento, which as you may or may not know um, is is a city of rivers and there's uh, and that affects the the place in, in a lot of different ways. So the students focused on agriculture. You can see uh, in that photo there's a couple bandanas from the Bandana Project, which is a project to, um, to bring to light um, uh, abuse of women farm workers. Um, there's uh, there's a section about recreation on the rivers. So these things, which we built a whole case for, are frogging poles that were used to catch frogs in the um, in West Sacramento in the '60s and '70s. Uh, so we're delighted to get these in. They, um, I'm not sure if you can tell from there, but they are made of just a piece of bamboo with a uh, a frogging fork uh, attached to it. So there's a nice kind of DIY component to that. Um, but, but things that, that these students thought were important about Sacramento and the story of the rivers there. Um, and we also had the station in the middle to talk about, um, to allow visitors to talk back uh, about uh, some stories they might, they might not know um, that, that they thought uh, would be important to exhibit. Um so this was a way f- to identify some issues that were important to uh to contemporary people. Uh the students did uh oral history interviews of people in their community who uh who then uh suggested some artifacts to collect as part of this. So some of the things we collected were uh, a flood readiness kit for a section of Sacramento that always floods, Natomas. Um we also uh, collected those frogging poles and a number of a number of other artifacts related to that. So the next project I'm going to talk about is uh, was a collaboration with uh, Cal State Fullerton, which is in Orange County, and the project um, that the students did was about the recession in Orange County, the 2008 recession, the one that that's. Uh, that's uh, still happening. <laughs> so, um, so this is this is as as uh, contemporary as you can possibly get. Um, and the students thought that this was a really important uh, story to tell, especially since uh, Orange County is seen as such a kind of homogeneously affluent place. Um, so they, they also did oral history interviews um, with all kinds of people from a, across the area, um, people who were unemployed, people who uh, were searching for jobs, people who um, had uh, struggled to keep their home, uh, but, and also education activists, uh, students and teachers um, in uh, all kinds of classes um, from, from K through 12 through university. And leisure activities. So um, there's a section about Disneyland in there. All the students were really had a lot to say about Disneyland, Um, and we were able to collect um, some artifacts relating to um, Disney Disneyland Southern California annual pass, going to a uh, payment plan system, um, which which the students uh, thought thought was a really interesting. interesting way to think about uh money and and Disney. And um the the uh person that was interviewed um for the Disney portion of the project said, you know, this is a case where you have to pay more for happiness. <laughs> <laughs> so we put we put that quote on the wall. Uh, <laughs> um, the, the, the guy you see um on the wall, the big puppet, is a puppet of uh, Charles Reed, who's the former uh, chancellor of the CSU system. And that, yeah, so that, that puppet was used in a protest against rising tuition costs and rising, rising administrator pay. Um, and um, the students found really amazing stuff to, to talk about uh, in, in this show. Uh, what else do I have? Housing, um, we, have, we had a lot of great paper material that the students found for us and had, and um, that we thought was really emotionally resonant, but we wanted to um, to give a framework for people to think about. So uh, that door has a has a foreclosure notice on it uh, that that a student helped us find and collect, um, and in that mailbox are. Um, um, letters noted, noting um, unemployment extensions and a collection of hardship letters that were written to banks uh, asking for mortgage adjustments. Um, so we, we, we collected paper material, which is something that you usually, which is easy to find for contemporary issues, uh, but had to find a compelling way to display them instead of just just sticking them up in a case, um, so we we printed some letters on tieback and let visitors flip through them themselves, and we thought that was a useful way to do it. Um, and the students, as part of the uh, as part of the grant, we were able to get the students to come up and uh, be part of of the opening. That's one of the students listening to some of the oral histories. Um, we also have another talkback station. Um, and it has two questions. One is, how has the recession affected you? Um, and that's on the left, and we've and we had amazing visitor comments to that. It really has resonated with visitors, um, just pouring out, people just pouring out their hearts on these comment cards. And then on the facing wall, um, the question is, uh, what should the museum collect to, uh, to help uh, tell the story of the recession? And the visitors, also have great ideas about that, from house keys to foreclosure signs. Uh, there's actually a, for, a foreclosure sign and um, there's a avoid short sale sign that's in the show that, that we have collected as well. Um, but they had some, some great ideas for, for other, other ways that we might reflect this this story in, in the exhibit. And there's the students. Uh, they came up, I wanted to, wanted to feature them as well. All right. Um, so that is that is how uh, this project has been going. It's been a way for us to meet people all over the state and collect uh, contemporary artifacts from all over the state. So I wanted to also just briefly talk about field collecting um, because I think that's another really important part of contemporary collecting is is uh, following your nose and finding out when something interesting is happening and Going to collect stuff about it. Uh, so, for instance, um, a few months ago, um, there was a Supreme Court case uh, that was um, about the Defense of Marriage Act that was uh, uh, celebrated very strongly um, in the Bay Area. Um, so, so me and and various deputized uh, members of the museum community uh, went out to San Francisco to various parties. Um, and uh, And collected things one one exciting thing that uh, a colleague of mine collected was a sign on a parking meter on Castro Street, saying, uh, "You know parking is closed there's going to be marriage equality uh, parties so um, so some 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 real things that you can 't get unless you're at the scene and and are just going and seeing what's happening and finding uh, finding what might be important and it's useful to just go out and Come back with a handful of stuff and um, and sort through it later and figure out what what to collect about it later. Uh, one other um, another field collecting story I wanted to share is related to Occupy Oakland. Um, you may or may not know Oakland had a, a very uh, very active Occupy movement in um, in what they called Oscar Grant Plaza, which is uh, Kind of the plaza outside City Hall, and um, this was the arts and crafts tent, and um, and an artist uh, Miguel Arzabe went every day to occupy and painted signs, um, and he um, and that banner that says "Occupy Space" that's on the side of the uh, side of the tent uh, is now in our collections. Um, so just really trying to reflect what's been happening in the city and the state right now. Um, and uh, so that people can see uh, their own experiences driving driving down 14th Street and and seeing this banner up for six months um, and and have that in the museum and be able to have a space to kind of stand back and reflect on their experiences there. So I re- I can't speak highly enough about the importance of. Uh, field collecting and just keeping your eyes open for for things that are happening and being able to be responsive uh, to contemporary events. I wanted to end with a few guidelines for contemporary collecting uh, based on my own experience. Um, One is to have a collecting plan, Um, and I can't stress that enough, and to have an up-to-date collecting plan that allows you to to be flexible about uh, um, about what you do, but to make sure that you're strategic. So I may go out and collect a ton of flyers related to a protest, but I'm not going to acquisition all of them. So, um, so, so let yourself be guided by a plan that's, that you have wide consensus for in your museum. And if you write in contemporary protest culture and the kinds of things you want to collect into your collecting plan, um, then you have something to fall back on when people are when people ask you why should you why should I collect this what's important about it well we we've said this is our policy um, collect for context so this is this is exactly what uh, what Veronica has also been talking about but that we really need to have the stories behind things um, and I really like having. Uh, kind of a galaxy of other supporting materials around things that you collect. For instance, if you collect a cell phone, maybe you want to collect cases, you want to collect a bill, you want to collect um, uh, a charging cord, or any, anything else that can give a sense of where, um, where the object is in a network of, of other cultural objects. Um, Especially for technology, it's really important to have context around it uh, because uh, our our contemporary computing technology is really super networked, um, and it's very hard to exhibit networks. Um, So the more accessories you can get that kind of push you there, the better. Uh, Collect for change, not milestones. This is another kind of technology collecting uh, guideline. Is that if you want to if you want to collect the first X um, of everything, you are not going to have enough space. So uh, it's um, and do you really want an encyclopedic collection of uh, you know uh, of every of every netbook? Maybe not. I mean, so um, but uh, so we I like to think about it as collecting for change. So. Kind of something major new that happens, not not in terms of a product schedule, but in terms of the way that that uh, people use uh, use things. I can talk more about that later if you like. Ask visitors what's important. Um, as a visitor-centered museum, we are always asking visitors what uh, what's important in their lives. What what they think is important in the past um, and trying to get a visitor perspective into um, our exhibits. Um, The What's Happening California project, um, by collaborating with students and community members across the state, that really um, helps connect us to a a wider group of people and and get different perspectives on what might be important that's happening right now. and my last piece is to recognize that your collecting will never be finished. Uh, because if you're collecting what's happening right now, what's happening right now keeps going, and history keeps happening. Uh, so I encourage you to, to keep doing that. So thank you.
0: So um, if any comment or question that we'd like to welcome anyone to have, say anything. Sure.
2: Um, when you're talking about field collecting, I guess my one question is how do you approach something that's more of a disaster than a celebration? Because obviously you don't want to write an earthquake, go out and be like, Well we want to preserve
3: this and get me what I mean, how do you do that? Do you wait after the fact for that?
1: Um, well sometimes you go down and you and you say, Can I have your gloves? You know, I mean you you you, you might wait a couple days. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, but but for instance, a great example is um, after the the Boston Marathon bombings, um, uh, and uh, Rainey Tisdale wrote a couple really great articles about this. But there were all these all these kind of ad hoc memorials set up uh, around the city, and a plan was developed among a number of, of local institutions to collect some of those artifacts, and and that that happened slowly enough. It, it happened. It happened slowly, but really fast for museums. Um, I, I would say so. I think that there's uh, that we're building precedents for how to do that. Um, and one example that uh, that Leslie talked about in the survey was uh, was American history collecting 9/11 stuff, uh, which is a really you know a really emotionally fraught, fraught kind of collecting process. And of course the uh, the 9-11 museum and, and the work that they do. So uh, there's, um, you need to be sensitive, certainly. It's a fine, it's a fine. Fi- r- yeah, and on- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ex- exactly, exactly. And and I think that, um, being a trusted, a trusted place in your community already is, is the way to do that. Having relationships already so that you don't seem like you're sweeping in. Um, I think that that's, that's a really important way to, uh, to maintain your integrity. I don't know who's next. <laughs> I think
0: Do you want to speak to Well, um, with our, even though we have a very defined collecting period, you know, our period of significance stops in 1951 officially for our scope of collection statement. But at some point, we do have to kind of ask ourselves we have 10,000 ration books, do we need one more? Or, um, you know, this object has a very rich story behind it, and this one is very interesting, but we don't know very much about the person behind it, and so we try to um, sort of weigh those values against each other and decide, well, if we already have 10,000 of X, we will take more if we have a very well-documented story that doesn't represent a story that we already have in our collection and then write that into our collecting plans so that we do try to constrain as much as possible. And um, with the Park Service in general, we're required to review our uh, scope of collection statements every five years. And so every five years, we have to kind of do the whole process over again of reviewing what exactly do we have here, how much of this is still relevant, and then make the case for... Weeding out things that we feel are no longer as relevant to the collection as possible. So I would say just regular review um, of your collecting plans and looking at those practical issues as well as what is the mission of the overall institution and has that mission evolved with the collection.
1: Yeah, and, and I I don't think that I mean I I try not to collect things with restrictions so. The future curator, when they when they do some kind of some kind of deaccession process, you know, they they might think that my amazing objects are not amazing anymore, and that's that that's that's just the breaks. Um, yeah. Um, you know, that's such a fraught issue in the field right now. I, um, w- why don't we save that for later, and we'll talk about, and we can just talk about contemporary collecting at the moment. Is that okay?
2: <laughs> One of the things that she's proposing is to start changing the conversation with donors when it comes to especially contemporary collecting, where we no longer make the promise to say that we're going to take your pieces in and hold them forever, but we actually negotiate like a period. We're up front with them that what we're doing is we're making a bet on the future. Because if we're betting wrong, we're costing our institution a ton of money and time and storage and cataloging and all the rest. And so we need to start thinking about maybe it matters now, maybe it has a period of significance in 50 years, do we really need to hold it, or do we need to hold that many pieces, or do we cull that Boston Marathon bombing collection down after a certain period and hold only the four pieces, and then you know move the rest out, and really start changing that conversation, because if you're betting and you lose, then you know, you're costing, you're saddling your institution with an anchor um, that's going to prevent you from collecting the contemporary that you want to collect now. And so, it, it's just a bit, got some interesting thoughts
1: about that. Thank you. That's a great, a great comment.
2: There's okay. a book entitled
3: Contemporary Collecting. And mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, I think the author is Rice.
1: Yeah, Owen Rice. Rice. Yeah.
3: Um, and he speaks about uh, museums that are seeking to begin co- contemporary established museums who are seeking to begin contemporary collecting and how they might define their collecting policy. And uh, he he advises museums to look at their existing collections. Um, And I I think it's important for uh, cooperative collecting among museums, Um, those sorts of cooperative collecting policies already exist, Um, and I think as you embark
1: That that's a great point. Um and the book that, that he was referring to is called Contemporary Collecting by by Owen Riss um and was published by Museums et cetera, and is, as far as I know, the the only one of the only books about contemporary collecting right now, so I definitely recommend it to you if if you haven't read it. Another book I would recommend um, is is a book called Doing Contemporary History, edited by by Claire Potter and Renee Romano. That's a real that's a more um, more academic uh, side of this, saying why, should, um, talking about all the pushback that people get from um, from their academic colleagues about doing contemporary history, saying, oh, you don't have enough distance; it's not possible um so that that's a terrific comment um and i think that the we have we absolutely have to look at our the our own collections right now and 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 the scope of it um and uh for instance in terms of computer collecting i have kept my eye very closely on the computer history museum in mountain view and they have collected everything um, so I don't feel the need to collect every Osborne that comes my way anymore because I know that they have been collected in a number of other institutions. Do you have a,
0: anything to say? okay. No, materials that are self-deteriorating, no matter how much, you know, what preservations you're using, um, that, you know, something that you're collecting, but you know it's not going to last, A collection and know that it's going to you know, expire in 15 years, that it's you know, going to fall apart, or how to handle all of that? Um, I, the quick, quickest example that comes to my mind is whether or not to still be collecting newspapers, because that is something that no matter what we do to it, in a few years you're going to open that folder and it's going to be dust. Yeah. Um, and so the one thing that we try to do is just document as much as possible, whether that's making a digital copy um, printing out as many hard copies um, and documenting the information that that object or, um, contains as much as possible. And then at some point, yes, you just kind of have to stand back and say that's that's not going to last. Um, and then that's also kind of where we weigh things against more practical realities such as if we know it's not going to last, do we have the space and the resources to take care of it for the ten years that it will be with us? Um, and so just documenting as much and as closely as possible to capture the information while we still have it, regardless of whether we're able to keep it or not. I'm in the back.
2: Um, you talked about collecting protest material, and I think everyone here would probably agree that we live in a very, very polarized uh, period uh, in our nation's history. Um, can you talk a bit more about the challenges that you face with collecting protest material since it represents one side of a political issue and as historians, I think we're interested in in preserving all opinions concerning uh, a political issue, not to mention the fact that our institutions may be pressured to do Mm -hmm. just that.
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, so uh, a great example um, of, of collecting various sides of an issue, uh, we have a section in, in this uh, Contemporary California History uh, section of our gallery about uh, the border, um, and we talk about maquiladoras, and we talk about um, uh, people crossing in various ways, um, and we also uh, collected some material from the Minutemen, um, the the organization that uh, kind of uh, patrols the border um, and we have various various signs and uh, t-shirts and, and other other material related to that. So um, so while I could, I could uh, be collecting signs from every protest in Berkeley. Um, <laughs> I could I could go once a week and I could be collecting things. But um, we do try to be judicious and um, since we're not telling every since we are not telling every story, since we have plans and, and, and particular emphases, um, we try to to get a wide range of opinions on on all of those. Um and we have a we have a, a talk back board right, right next to this border section and it, it and it is the most active uh active talkback section we have. There's there's always really really complicated arguments happening in there. Um so um so we feel like it's useful to have um a couple different kinds of of materials uh, from from different political perspectives around there.
2: I didn't hear where you said the Rosie the Riveter National Historic Park because I've never heard of it. And I go to California periodically. So where
0: is it? It's, uh, uh, it. Richmond, California is just north of Oakland and across the bay from San Francisco. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you want to talk um, about how it was recently started and all that?
0: Um, yeah, it actually started because a group of local citizens wanted to erect a memorial statue in a city park dedicated to the women who worked in the shipyards. Um, Richmond had the largest shipyard complex in the Bay Area during the war. And um, through that single effort to get a statue established in the city park, um, the Park Service got involved when it was realized that there were multiple historic structures that had basically gone unchanged since the war years. Um, and because so much historic fabric remains, um, maintained so much of its historic integrity, so many years later it was sort of established as a historical park. So the park is actually spread out throughout the entire city. There's um, a historic shipyard that is still operating, a Ford Motor Plant building, a child care center, a field hospital, a fire. It's just these structures all throughout the city. There's really not one central um, park itself. Um, I guess now our visitor center, which actually only opened last year, even though the park was started in 2000. Um, so if you haven't heard of it, it's very understandable. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's a sort of a complicated part to explain and a complicated one to find. <laughs>
3: while others don't, and, and can you talk a little bit or share some perspective on collections realignment um, if, if you're swapping out artifacts or sharing things
0: between mm-hmm.
1: institutions? And, and yeah, sounds like Oakland. Yeah. Um, so, um, so um, the o- yeah. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. yeah, why don't you give me an example? Okay. <laughs> I'm uh County. Right? Uh-huh. I run a uh, county history museum and uh, archive
3: mm-hmm. school. Oh. And um, I'm sort of faced with the challenge of the potential of a collections realignment. And I'm struggling with sort of the academic side, not being an academically trained historian, sort of how that, you know, how how I might resolve that particular issue. I mean, I have a collections committee, I, I run things through my board, but does anyone else in the room have any perspective on collections realignment?
0: That reminds me sort of of a situation that we have in Richmond. There's the park, which is specifically looking at Richmond during the war years, but actually the nation as a whole during the war years. And there is the Richmond Museum of History, which is a local city institution that is looking at Richmond from the founding of the city to the present day. So there's a lot of overlap between our collection and theirs, and um, there's a lot of instances where we get a copy of their newsletter and they have some things that we know we were looking at. Um, or that we definitely feel it's more in line with our collection and vice versa. We have things related to the city that they wish they had. Um, They actually recently just got a new staff and so we sort of reached out to them to sort of say, we have these very overlapping collecting policies, how can we work together to further both of our causes? Um, If you're doing an exhibit on X and we can do an exhibit on X.2, Um, and sort of, like, cross-promote each other and um, establish much more of a partnership rather than a competition amongst the two institutions. That's, um, I think, you're never really going to be able to get away from having someone else out there wanting some of the same stuff as you have, I guess.
1: Well, we had a comment earlier about uh, cooperative collecting and, and, and making... Um, and kind of setting out from from the beginning, talking about what is my scope and what is your scope, and it it seems like you have a kind of trickier interpersonal uh, question, um, and <laughs> um, so so I'm not sure exactly what advice to give you. Maybe uh, people in the audience have an idea. Someone in the back here.
2: We placed many of the items that related more closely to those institutions back in those institutions, first on loan, and then in the last few years, we've looked at that and it didn't really taken care of, and is getting access, we've actually turned them over because they didn't want to be there, um, although they wouldn't have existed if we had to save them when we did. Yeah. So I think mm-hmm. I
1: really huh. Actually, did you do- Um, I know we had some more questions um, Go ahead.
3: I mean, they often don't find a home.
1: They, yeah. I mean, they they were ephemeral in the first place. Um, so, um, one of the one of the things about doing field collecting is then you bring it back and you have your whole museum and your collections committee and everyone else who who has an opinion about collections. Um, so, so it's an opportunity to uh, take them back to your institution and think about what. Uh, what, what your strategy is about collecting, and what stories you really want to highlight, and maybe you, maybe this maybe I'm interested in something, and the rest of my museum thinks that it's total nonsense and not worth collecting. You know, may, you know. So there's there's definite possibilities that uh, um, that field collected items uh, do not do not get acquired. Other questions? Yeah.
2: In that regard, do you have a, a system policy in place regarding pre accessioning or temporary deposits where basically you're just signing a temporary deposit uh, receipt with the donors and owners of the material? You sit through it and then the material you take, you sort of you to gift that for the other stuff you might return or do something else with? It.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Just deposit receipts. Mm hmm. Um, other questions? Um, to, go ahead. This wanted is just a comment, but we can have a similar discussion in our institution with archaeologists um, that actually came from me
3: picking up things in my backyard
0: because my house is built in 1900. And so there's the things I know to keep, you know, the pottery and glass, and then there
2: were all the pop tops from the cans in the 1970s. Mm-hmm.
3: Oh.
1: Absolutely, and it's it's kind of based on your institution's collecting strategy. It, that's what they tell me, yeah. Keep it all. <laughs> 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 um, does anyone have um, a contemporary collecting uh, story that they want to tell us? Uh, a really successful collecting uh, opportunity that you had?
2: Oh. <laughs> so,
1: uh um, and it means the newspapers, and
2: it
1: means the radio. Wow, yeah. Watch out for unexploded shot puts. <laughs> Any other stories to share? Uh, well, we have a little more time, but um, so we'll just uh, hang out here and feel free to chat with us. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, Paul uh, asked me to uh, uh, say if you... Um, there's a survey they have about nomenclature, so if you use the nomenclature, um, you are encouraged to fill out one of these surveys. He's holding them up back there. Um, and, and drop them off at the uh, Altamira booth. Um, so thanks again for coming to our session. We are delighted to hear from you.
0: Thank you. Good. Yeah. Good team.